This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you for coming for the last of the la- four Science on Saturday presentations. Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory produces Science on Saturday with the help of local educators. A special shout-out to Dick Farnsworth and the production staff for these creative presentations. They work very hard at getting the best presenters with new and innovative projects for your continuing science education. To say thank you, let's put our hands together. Our topic today is the bio and biofuels, new energy from ancient life. A few years back, I was driving down 580 near Berkeley, and I kept smelling French fries. Couldn't figure out what that was, but it went on for miles. And I read the sticker in front of me on a Mercedes using uh, oil from French fry cookers from fast food places to run his car. Pretty interesting, but it's an example of biofuels. This morning's presentation is about scientists seeking help from microbes to produce biofuel. In this presentation, Dr. Michael Thielen and Dr. Rona Stewart of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, with the help of Earth Science teacher Ken Weedle, will tell us about the exciting science of bioenergy. Dr. Michael Thielen is a biochemist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and is also at the, on the scientific staff of the Joint Bioenergy Institute. Michael began his studies at Chabot College in Hayward and later received his PhD at Cambridge University in England. Dr. Rona Stewart is a marine, bi- marine microbiologist with a special interest in cyanobacteria. Her education in ecology, behavior, and evolution from UC San Diego led to a PhD in marine biology from Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where she investigated cyanobacteria. Ken Weedle teaches earth science and earth science for English language learners at Tracy High School. In addition to a degree in geology from Cal State University Stanislaus, he works with action learning systems, creating California earth science standards-based benchmark tests. Please welcome Michael, Rona, and Ken. Thank you. Okay, we're going to start out with a short video. The key to producing biofuels such as oil, ethanol, and gasometane from plant refuge, things like mulch and wood chips, is extracting the polymers or sugars that are found in these materials. The problem is getting those sugars has been cost prohibitive. However, researchers have found Mother Nature already knows how. It's pretty safe to say that giant pandas also have fairly specialized microorganisms in their digestive tract which help them digest all that plant material that they take in every day. The cellulitic microbes found in the gut of a panda can break down complex sugars in this plant material. Dr. Ashley Brown is the lead researcher on the study and says there are two ways this might work. We're looking for the microbes that release the protein that cleaves all those polymers of sugars out into the environment. The second would take out the middleman and go straight to producing biofuels. We could take the gene out of the microbe, insert it into another microbe that produces biofuel. Okay, so energy is something that we all need. It comes in different forms, such as heat and electricity uh, to power our homes. 
and fuel to get us around town and around the world. And that's something that actually all of us, all of us humans share, is that we like to get around. And to do that requires energy. The use of fire to cook food and to heat dwellings, using wood as the fuel, dates back at least 400,000 years. And coal began to be used as a fuel about 2,400 years ago. But since, since then, things have sort of gone downhill. The problem with the way we make fuels today is that the energy that plants and cyanobacteria and algae captured from sunlight millions of years ago is now used to produce a lot of fuel and the product is carbon dioxide. And with these large quantities of carbon dioxide that are pumped into the atmosphere, there's not any carbon dioxide going back in. And so this is causing a slow warming of our planet, melting the polar ice caps, rising sea levels, and making the oceans more acidic, which is bad in two ways. It's bad for the marine life. It's also bad because as it becomes more acidic, it no longer has the capacity to take up the carbon dioxide. So this is actually a losing battle. These ancient reserves of energy sources are being used up. They're not renewable. And the carbon gases that are produced by burning these fuels are not being taken back at the same rate. It's an imbalanced equation. This is an enormous problem, but we feel that this can be solved by using biofuels. So we're excited about biofuels and our research in making it, and we think you will be too, because this is going to help us to solve this energy problem. The energy in biofuels, such as wood or ethanol, that actually comes from energy that producers captured from sunlight very recently. Energy stored in these fuels is released during reactions like combustion, which also uh, releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But, and this is very important, the photosynthetic generation of new biomass, which you can see coming around the left side of that figure, is taking back in all this, or almost all the CO2 that was used to produce the fuel and to use it. This biomass is abundant, it's renewable, and it's homegrown. So this is, the, this is a balanced equation. Biofuels also are less toxic than fossil fuels. And in a recent study done by the Department of Energy, it was determined that the United States could produce enough biomass to replace 30% of the U.S. gasoline consumption. So that's very significant. And it means that we should actually keep moving, moving forward with biofuel research. Now, the way that we make biofuels is through a completely unseen part of the world. 
and that's by microbes. So Rona's going to tell you a bit about microbes. Hi, everyone. Um, so we're going to be talking a lot about microbes today, um, but before I get into definitions and what we're going to talk about, I need to get one thing out of the way. So uh, I want you guys to think about what you usually think of when you hear the word microbe or bacteria. So I imagine a lot of you guys probably think infection, disease, germs, and those are all sort of negative things. So microbes have a really bad reputation, and today we want you to learn and we hope to show you guys that microbes are actually doing a lot of good things as well, and they don't really deserve this bad reputation. Yes, they cause disease, but they also do a lot of good things for us. And if they, in fact, if they weren't around on this planet, we wouldn't be able to survive on this planet without them there. So here's what we want you to learn today. First, microbes are the good guys. Second, a little bit more about where and how microbes make a living on this planet, because it's unique and different from how we do. And third, how we can use microbes to solve a lot of our energy problems. All right, so now into the definitions. What is a microbe? So you can also call it a microorganism, a bacteria, a bug. These broad definitions include viruses, bacteria, some fungi, other life forms, but basically all of them are invisible to the human eye. So it's the things you don't just see around you, but that you have to use a microscope to look at. We also affectionately like to refer to them as tiny beasties. And Michael's going to show us how small they really are. So this will be fun. We're going to take a look at a pinhead... And we're going to drill down in size a million fold. <clears throat> so we'll start here with what we can see with our eyes. But then we'll go into the realm where we have to use microscopes and even really high-powered electron microscopes. So as we go in now, we'll see a human hair. And that's just a little more than tenfold magnification. And there's a dust mite... And what's that speck there? Well, at about a thousand-fold magnification, we can see pollen grains. And then coming into to view are human cells and, um, and yeast. And then if we go further, about 10,000-fold, we can see E. coli staphylococcus bacteria. Now we've gotten out of the realm of the light microscope. And we're going into using an a, a electron microscope to be able to see the viruses. So here at about 100,000-fold magnification is the Ebola virus. And further down even than that are the smallest viruses, or the rhinovirus, which causes the common cold. Okay, so they're not only really tiny, but microbes are also quite beautiful they have many different shapes and um, colors and they actually do lots of different things they make a living for themselves in completely different ways and so Rona's going to tell you about some of those ways and where we can find them so we can find microbes pretty much everywhere you can imagine anywhere you can think to look almost you can find microbes so, for example, 
You can find them in hot springs in Yellowstone. They're responsible for some of those colors you see there. They're thriving in these hot, sulfurous ponds that we can barely even like stand, stand by. You can also find them in pools of acid, living happily, and at the bottom of the ocean, thousands of feet down under high pressure at deep ocean smokers, where there's high temperatures and high pressures, and they're living there happily. You can also find them in the desert and even in clouds. So you can find microbes everywhere, and there's lots of them. Scientists estimate there's 10 to the 31 microbial cells on Earth. That's 10 followed by 31 zeros. It's an almost impossible number to imagine. So they're really everywhere. You can even find them inside your body, and there's actually more bacterial cells in your body than there are human cells. And that shouldn't scare you, because as I said, microbes are the good guys, and most of those are helping you out and helping you to do your daily things. So to get a little bit closer to our energy problems, this is a global map of carbon dioxide all throughout the globe. So the red, red spots are high hot spots of carbon dioxide, and the greens and blues are sort of lower carbon dioxide areas. And what I want to show you here is that microbes have been around a lot longer on this planet than we have, and they've adapted to all these different environments. And they have incredible powers to change the atmosphere. And they've been doing it for a lot longer than we have. And if we can use those powers and learn from them in terms of how they get oxygen and get carbon dioxide out of the environment, we can learn a lot and we can make some huge strides towards solving our energy problems. So Michael and I are both going to give you an example. So you're going to get two examples today of bioenergy and how we use microbes and harness their powers to help change our world. So I'm going to talk to you guys first about hydrogen. So we already use hydrogen today. It's not biohydrogen, it's hydrogen gas. And we use it to run our cars and launch our spaceships. How do we make it today? I said it's not biohydrogen. So there are two main ways that we make it. One is called steam reforming, and the other is called electrolysis. And Ken is going to give us our first demo today on electrolysis. So take it away, Ken. Still morning, yes. Um, I'm just curious, how many, raise your hand if you're in sixth grade. Okay, so only the sixth graders with their hand raised. Can you tell me what uh, water is made of? I, I heard some letters. H2O? The H stands for what again? Hydrogen. And the O stands for? And which, which is there more of? H2O, so there's more hydrogen. So we can decompose water to make um, hydrogen and oxygen. One of the ways we do that is called electrolysis. And we can run an electric field through the water. So I have a, a power source here and a negative and positive lead. And um, oxygen, or excuse me, water, when you break it apart, your hydrogen is a positive so it's going to be attracted to the negative lead, and the oxygen would be a, a negative ion. It's going to be attracted to the anion, the um, negative lead. When we run the field across, the energy from electricity is going to break apart the water, and it's going to, all the hydrogen will go towards the negative side, and you should see a lot more of the hydrogen being created. And just, just a little bit, not too much on the, the oxygen. 
um, is there. It takes longer. Uh, but the hydrogen clearly is created. And process of electrolysis, of course, you do this enough, you can get quite a bit of hydrogen. Thanks, Ken. All right. So uh, not to put a downer on things, but electrolysis is really cool, and you can separate out hydrogen. But unfortunately, there are some downsides to it. So it doesn't generate any greenhouse gases, but it's quite expensive. So to generate enough hydrogen to launch a, launch a rocket ship, you need a lot of hydrogen. And it's pretty expensive to make it with electrolysis. Steam reforming is cheaper, but it releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So it's not really helping with our energy problems and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So there's another way to make hydrogen to, using biology. And that is using microbes to help us. Um, and before I get into biohydrogen, I need to introduce my favorite bacterium in, on the planet, and it's called cyanobacteria. And they are amazing, and I'm going to tell you why, and hopefully you'll agree with me and spread the word on how amazing cyanobacteria are. So they are photosynthetic microorganisms, and you can find them pretty much anywhere there's sunlight. So you scoop up some seawater in the surface, you can see cyanobacteria in there with a microscope. And anywhere on the surface, even in the desert, they can form some crusts, and you can find cyanobacterial crusts in the desert. So there's photosynthetic, which means they get sunlight for energy, and they take CO2 out of the environment and and release oxygen into the environment and provide food. So they're the basis, because they're photosynthetic, they're the basis of the food web. They also come in a lot of pretty colors and can be quite beautiful under the microscope. So this is another global map. This is showing photosynthesis on Earth. So you can see there's some bright blue areas in the oceans around the poles and at the equator. And those are from phytoplankton, which includes cyanobacteria. So those are all the photosynthetic microorganisms that are in the surface oceans. And they're responsible for a lot of the oxygen you breathe. And cyanobacteria are, in fact, the inventors of photosynthesis. So about a million years ago, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. And cyanobacteria came along invented photosynthesis and added oxygen to the atmosphere. So you can thank them for every breath you take. (laughs) And in fact, they are also the origin of the chloroplast. So all land plants, might or might not know, have what's called the chloroplast, and they use that to photosynthesize. Well, so originally back about a million years ago, another cell engulfed a cyanobacteria and essentially enslaved it to do photosynthesis for it, and that became the chloroplast. So all photosynthesis originates from cyanobacteria originally. So cyanobacteria are really great. (laughs) They can also form cyanobacterial mats, which might just look like a bit of mud, but it's actually a dense formation, a mat of cyanobacteria. And you can see it circled here in orange. This is in the Elkhorn Slough in Monterey Bay. And they form these crusts in tidal areas and in estuaries. And um, people have been studying them for quite some time. So people at NASA have been interested in them because they're sort of an example of primordial Earth and the life what life might have been like in primordial Earth is these sort of mats on the surface that are collecting sunlight for energy and feeding this whole system. So you can think of these mats where cyanobacteria are sort of like the trees in a rainforest. They're providing the structure, and then all these other organisms come and live in between. So people have been studying these mats for quite some time, and they notice these bubbles coming off of them. And everyone sort of assumed these bubbles were oxygen because I told you that photosynthesis 
from these cyanobacteria. They take up CO2 and they release oxygen. But someone decided to measure the bubbles and found out that while some of them were oxygen, a lot of these bubbles were pure hydrogen gas. So these cyanobacteria mats just bubble off hydrogen naturally without us having to do anything to them. They naturally produce this hydrogen. So of course the question then becomes, can we use this for anything? So this is a cross section of the mat with some hydrogen bubbles circled. So you can get an idea. The surface layer is all the cyanobacteria collecting the sunlight. And then there's other deeper layers with the other bacteria living in them. So this is what the mats look like under the microscope. The green stringy filaments are the cyanobacteria, and then there's other bacteria like those uh, brown, brown spots that the arrow is pointing to that are other bacteria that sort of live in amongst the cyanobacterial filaments. So what's the goal? What do we want to get from these mats? Well, what's amazing about them is it's a pretty much a one-stop shop. All you do is add sunlight, and you get bioenergy in the form of hydrogen. You get oxygen, and you get food. And you're removing the CO2 that you're breathing from the atmosphere. And on top of that, when you use the hydrogen gas, you get water vapor as a byproduct. So you're also getting water. So this is everything you need to take with you to another planet or on your spaceship and survive. So that's sort of the goal with these. And then also, hopefully, we could produce enough hydrogen that we could use them here on Earth to harvest the hydrogen to power our cars or something like that. So a little bit more about where we study them, where we collect these mats. You can find them all over the place. The ones that we collect with our colleagues at NASA are in uh, Baja and then also uh, closer to home in Monterey Bay in Elkhorn Slough. So that's just a picture of them and a map. So we collect them from these areas and then we take them to these greenhouses. This is a picture of the rooftop at NASA Ames. This is the um, Bebout Labs there greenhouse where they keep and grow these cyanobacterial mats. So the picture on the left is the greenhouse, and then inside the greenhouse is on the right showing the maps. They have circulating water, so they're constantly under water circulation. And then on top of the mats there, so the mats are those brown, orangey things, you can see these structures that we've set up to collect the gases and measure them, and then also inject chemicals to do some experiments in the mats. So, however, we're not quite there yet. We can't take these mats on a spaceship yet. And there's a couple different main problems that we need to overcome before we can use them. First, these mats grow very slowly, and they don't produce enough hydrogen yet. And second, and sort of tied to this first problem, is that these are some of the most diverse, complex microbial communities on Earth. So there's lots and lots of species in there, and they all are doing things, but we don't know who's important. So bacteria like to live together, and a lot of times they help each other out. So you can't just have one organism. You need to have multiple species, but sometimes they also hurt each other. So we need to figure out who's important, who's helping make the hydrogen, and who's hurting the hydrogen production, and how we can simplify these mat communities into something that we can take with us and grow quickly. So this is a diagram. It's supposed to be complicated, so don't be afraid of its <laughs> complicated nature. I'm going to explain it, but I really want this up here to illustrate a point that these mats are really complex and complicated. And you can see there's a lot of question marks up there. There's a lot of things we still don't understand about who is doing what. There's all these different species and we don't know who's important. So some of the ways we try and tackle that is by following the elements. So what you have here is a diagram showing sort of a cross section of a mat. So the green is the, is the cyanobacterial mat and the blue on top is the water up above it. 
And what we do is sort of measure and try and follow the nutrients and gases coming in and out of the mat. So on the far left, you have nitrogen, N2 gas, which is an important nutrient. And then I told you that cyanobacteria take up CO2, carbon dioxide, and release oxygen. So you can see those arrows going in and out of the cyanobacteria. The cyanobacteria also produce the hydrogen, which is in that orange square. And then the hydrogen will go up to the surface as well, but it'll also get eaten, and we're not sure who's doing that. So there's a lot of question marks and a lot of sort of elements that we're trying to follow to figure out where the different nutrients and sugars go in the mat and who's helping out who and who's hurting who. So how do we do that? How do we try and ask some of these questions to better get at better hydrogen production from these mats? So how do you study what you can't see and you maybe can't even grow? You use microscopes and technology involving microscopes, and you also use molecular biology and chemistry. So that forms the basis of most of our experiments. So we look at genes and proteins to try and figure out who is there and who's in these mats and what they're doing. And then we also do chemical measurements to try and answer these questions. But before I get into explaining a little bit more about our microscopy, I need Ken to give us another demo on fluorescence so you guys understand about that. So... So fluorescence is one of the tools that Rona uses to identify different creatures. Uh, with fluorescence, you have um, light coming in, and some material can absorb two photons, and that allows it to reflect back a shorter wavelength light. I have a, a black light up here, and that's going to emit some UV radiation, which is a longer wavelength. And nature has natural fluorescence in it. Um, I have three rocks here that, that have fluorescence. I know it's about microbiology, but I had to bring in rocks somehow because that's what I teach. Um, but we can use that to kind of demonstrate some of the fluorescence. So if we could, yeah, oh, I wanted to point out here. Um, you notice the color on these rocks are not very exciting. They're just kind of whitish, brownish, uh, gray, uh, not much to them. So if we could bring down the lights in the front. So you can see here, it has some yellow fluorescing from the first one. Um, this is, has some white glowing. And on the end here, you can see that there's some, some veins of a pink throughout, throughout that you didn't see there before. So those are materials inside that are reflecting back a shorter wavelength. Some of the bacteria, this is a, a little bit more difficult to see. Um, but this doesn't have any glow to it, but when you submit it to the, the longer wavelength light, it can at the right angle here. You can see a little bit there, a slightly purplish color. So in here is a cyanobacteria protein that you can identify using that, that purplish color when it fluoresces. Sometimes they can even attach or when it attaches uh, fluorescent ability to some bacteria so that she can identify them. Thank you. Um, all right, so this is a picture. Give it a moment. <laughs> this is a picture um, that we took in our lab under the microscope of a cyanobacterial mat. And you can see there's two different colors here. So as Ken showed, cyanobacterial proteins can kind of fluoresce back 
red or violet. And so these red filaments that you're seeing in this picture are the cyanobacteria. So they have this property that they are naturally fluorescent, which is called autofluorescent. I don't have to add anything to them to make them fluorescent. You just look at them under the microscope and shine this light on them, and they'll fluoresce back red. So you can find them. But we can also do some cool things with fluorescence to tag things that are invisible without these tags. So in this picture, what we've done is attached a green fluorescent tag to a chemical that binds the slime in cyanobacteria, so the slime that they exude. And so we couldn't see that without this fluorescent label. And now you can see where all this green slime goes. And that's a start for us to try and trace back the nutrients that cyanobacteria exude and that other bacteria eat. So it's one way that we can visualize these mats and try and get a better idea of how these microbes grow. And then a little more complicated, we have three different times, types of microscopy, advanced microscopy that we can do at the lab to get a really good idea of who's doing what in these mats. So these three techniques are called SEM, FISH, and SIMS. I'm going to go through them each. So SEM stands for scanning electron microscopy, and it's the leftmost in the leftmost column of panels, of three panels there in that picture. So the gray ones are scanning electron microscope pictures. And what scanning electron microscopy allows you to do is zoom in to just super high definition onto these cells. So you can really see what individual cells do and how they're attached to each other. So in this picture, we have a clump of a cyanobacteria and some other bacteria that are associated with it. So then you can do a next step called FISH, which stands for fluorescent in situ hybridization. But you can just think of it as fishing, because what we're doing is fishing for certain species. So what we can do with this, with this technology is we have a piece of DNA that only matches one species in this community of all these different bacteria in this picture. So you add this tag in, and it has a fluorescent green label, and then you can find that one species that you want in a clump of cells that's a lot of different species. So you can see in that picture, if you compare the gray and the green pictures, you can see that not everything is lighting up green. Not all the cells are lighting up green that you can see in the gray picture. And then finally, there's SIMS, which is secondary ion mass spectrometry. And what that does is it shows you where the different elements are. So you can look at hot spots of carbon and nitrogen inside individual cells. So you can basically figure out what they're eating and what they're taking up and what they're releasing just by doing this using this SIMS technology. So you put these all together and you get an idea of what species are eating what and who's using the different elements. So this takes us really far into trying to answer some of these questions marks that we have about who's doing what in these mats and how we can get more hydrogen out of this, out of this system. So this is what we hope to do in the future. There's still a lot of question marks in these mats, and we've just begun to tap the surface on everything that's going on. So this is something far into the future. We don't have space colonies on Mars yet, but when we do, hopefully these mats can help keep our astronauts alive. And we have hydrogen cars, but we can't use the hydrogen from the mats yet to do them. So Michael's going to talk to us about another example of biofuels that we could use tomorrow. Good job, Rana. Thanks. So hydrogen fuel produced by cyanobacteria, that's really awesome. That is truly new energy produced by ancient life. I think that's part of our title. So now we want to look at 
these liquid biofuels that are made from biomass. Now, the, the general scheme here for making biofuels from plants is um, shown in three stages. We start with the plant material. We then um, use a chemical pretreatment to help to get the, the um, fibers of the plant apart so that they can be accessible for bacterial enzymes. So the next step in that second circle is the uh, bacteria that are going to break down the cellulose and other polysaccharides to sugars. And then another set of bacteria in the third circle will take those sugars and through several different biochemical steps end up producing the, the biofuel. So um, the, the, the first step is important because plant material is actually quite tough to get into. And so Ken is going to show you now um, the starting material that, that we use generally is um, something like switchgrass. We can take a look at that. Um, this is dried down material and we also use a lot of different types of biomass um, such as uh, other grasses, um, trees like poplar that are fast growing and, and pine and also eucalyptus. And all of the, the general characteristic uh, of all of these plants is that you can grow them without much attention. They don't need a lot of water or fertilizer. They're not taking up space that can be used by crops. And so they're generally not offsetting any of the food production that's going on. So that we already have biofuels that are being made from corn and from soy. But that is, we're trying to get away from that in this kind of second generation of biofuels. So what we do in the first step, like I said, is to use a chemical pretreatment. Um, and that, let's see if we can go back to the slides. If we take a close look at the plants, um, you can zoom in on some vascular tissue in a plant and see that it's composed of several different kinds of cells. And some of these cells are actually transporting water, the ones on the left side there in the middle. And so these cells actually form um, a passageway sort of end to end, making a, a kind of pipe through the, through the plant. And so because they're like pipes, they need to be extremely strong. And the, the strength that they have is conferred by cellulose fibrils and other compounds that are associated with it. If you look really at high resolution in an electron microscope, you can see on the far right kind of going down into one of these um, types of water transporting cells that there are cellulose rings or hoops that go around encircling the inside of the cell. So that's where they get their strength and that's why it makes it difficult for us to break these um, strong fibers apart. So the first thing we need to do uh, after drying the material is to 
uh, mill or grind the dried biomass down to small particles. So Ken can show you the next, or we can focus in on the next um, bottle there, which shows the ground switchgrass. And that one is basically like um, sawdust or or fine uh, sawdust or, or flour. Okay, so then the next step, if we can go back to the slides, is to use um, this pretreatment of of this ground-up biomass. And what we do here is we add a chemical um, known as an ionic liquid. And this is a kind of a molten salt. So it's a new class of chemicals. It's very compatible, environmentally friendly, and works really well to solubilize cellulose and, and other compounds from plants. We can see how this ionic liquid pretreatment works in a stem of the switchgrass. Here's a cross-section. On the left, you can see some of those water-transporting cells um, in this cutaway image. And on the right, a similar image is seen, but now we're going <clears> to <throat> we're going to treat this with um, with this ionic liquid and, and uh, some heat, and this will be quickly dissolved. And now it's really um, accessible by microbial enzymes. That movie was actually in real time, so it goes really fast. Um, the ionic liquids, there's lots of different kinds of these, and we're part of our research is actually finding out which ones work best to um, generate the kind of material we need to go to the next step. So the next step is called deconstruction. And here we take the, the cellulose that we've um, isolated away from the ionic liquid, and the, then we use microbes to break it down or digest it into sugars. To study how this step can work with different kinds of microbes, um, some of our colleagues tra- traveled to Puerto Rico to a well-studied forest where leaf material is turned over by microbial activity very quickly. And so here, here is the, the rainforest or cloud forest shown uh, from the bottom of this mountain. And if you go up closer to the top, Walking through this kind of jungle, you can see the, um, why it's called a cloud forest. And the, the soil here, like I said, is really full of microbes that are very active in breaking down all of the, the leaf litter that falls to the forest floor. So they have the capacity to have lots of different enzymes, and that's why we wanted to study this. So our colleagues actually took samples from the soil here and returned to our lab at the Joint Bioenergy Institute so that we could begin isolating the different bacteria based on their ability to break down these polymers. So we we could plate these bacteria out on petri dish like this and get them to grow. And we've isolated hundreds of these and studied them. And what we want to do now is to actually find the genes that encode those proteins that break down the the cellulose. So in order to tell you about this, we need to know a little bit more about 
the anatomy of bacteria. So here's just a basic cell bounded by um, the cell wall and a membrane. And in the middle is this um, purple kind of glob. That is actually the genome, or represents the genome. And here we have um, usually about 4,000 different genes. And all of these genes are needed for the basic uh, functions of the bacteria to grow and to reproduce. Then there are these other little circular DNAs called plasma DNA. And these often contain special genes um, which, which encode functions that enable it to survive in its particular environment. So as molecular biologists, we can actually uh, easily get these plasma DNAs, these small circular DNAs. We can cut them, we can insert a new gene that we're interested in, and then we can put it back in to a different bacterium and see what happens. So let's just go through this um, and, and see what I'm talking about here. Here's a typical type of a biofuel bacterium that should be able to break down biomass. And it's in this kind of a, a biofuel soup where we have um, cellulose particles in the background. And they're actually um, still carrying some of this ionic liquid. So that's what's shown in the red, the, the red rings there. The green rings are some sugar molecules, which we'll get to a little later. But um, the basic idea here is that you have this whole kind of a mixture. And Ken's going to show you now on the table here, the third bottle has the um, ground-up biomass that is mixed with this ionic liquid. And what you can see right away there is that it gets kind of a, a thick, syrupy, um, and it, it also turns very dark brown. And that's because it's, it's extracting out most of the lignin that's bound in the cell walls and that actually prevents the enzymes from getting to the cellulose. So um, now if we go back to the slide, we can see what happens when these bacteria are exposed to ionic liquid. Well, it turns out that it's toxic to bacteria. And that was actually a cause for great concern because once we hit this um, part of the, of the process, we were kind of stopped in our tracks. So we had to find a way that we could introduce some kind of a gene that would make these bacteria resistant to the ionic liquid. And here's where some of these bacteria from the rainforest come in. We actually found some genes in the rainforest bacteria that could confer this resistance or tolerance in our biofuel bacteria. And what we're showing here, just um, illustrating a gene in the yellow there as a resistance gene on this plasma DNA. And now if we mix that with a bacterium, bacteria easily takes it up 
And this actually makes the bacteria into a new strain. It gives it new characteristics. And that characteristic primarily is that it can grow and reproduce now in a solution that contains these ionic liquids. So now you can see the, the red rings that represent the ionic liquids all around the cell. Some get inside, but this gene encodes a protein that pumps it back out again. So now when we put this bacteria back into the biofuel scenario, it can start secreting enzymes, which are shown in the purple uh, stars there, and they can attack the cellulose sheets which are made completely of glucose units. And as they break down, digest that cellulose, these glucose come off on the right side of the screen. You can see individual sugar molecules. Okay, so then the third step in biofuel production is actually to use this, uh, the biofuel um, synthesizing strain of bacteria. Now here, it's going to take a little engineering. So we need to find genes from different sources, from other bacteria, from plants, and other um, organisms that can actually make different compounds. And so if we start with the sugar, the glucose, we want to be able to convert that to a different compound, and, and so on down the line, several compounds until we get to the final fuel product. So once we found all these different genes, we put them all together on this colorful plasmid on the lower right. And we introduce that to, the, to a bacterium that we've also got the resistance gene in. And so we mix those together. And now this, um, this new plasmid containing the biofuel synthetic pathway makes it possible for glucose to be converted into the final product, which we're showing here as um, the yellow compounds. This is known as bisabiline. It's a kind of a a biofuel. And um, Ken is going to show you now this biofuel that's actually separated out from from the liquid that uh, the bacteria were growing in. So he's shaking it up a little bit, and you can start seeing how that biofuel is kind of oily, and so it'll begin to rise up above the aqueous layer. And so already you can see that layer forming. Eventually the, the lower level, the lower uh, part will be completely clear. So all we have to do at this point is to siphon off that compound, that biofuel, and it's ready to go. Okay, so the result of all these studies that we're doing is that we can actually make several different kinds of biofuels, and each one of these can be used in a different situation. We can make alcohols, and those can be dropped right in to a gasoline station where they're pumping in gas. Um, And most engines in cars today can use um, alcohols. We also can make a different kind of compound called esters, and these can be used 
to provide the fuel for diesel trucks. And finally, um, there are other compounds that are a little more complex that can be used to draw to power jet engines. So basically, we've um, learned we've learned a lot about microbes today, and we'll just kind of review a few of these things. About 150 years ago, it was actually hard for people to believe that living things that were too tiny to see, or microbes, could actually cause a major human disease. But most of the microbes that we encounter and that inhabit the planet are important and are essentially are essential to keeping us alive. They, they actually produce oxygen, and they're needed for... Um, the digestion, and for other things that we need to live. So of the millions of types of microbes that are on the planet, the disease-causing microbes or pathogens make up only a tiny fraction. We also learned where and how microbes live on our planet. Microbes can make a living almost anywhere. And they make it seems like science fiction because it's in such... They're in such different places that are really difficult for us to imagine living in. And these, these environmental microbes have become very important to us because of the functions or the properties that they have that we can use in different situations, such as biofuels. So microbes can supply us with fuels for transportation and energy. And this is going to make real improvements in the environment and in the way we live. So we've told you what we've been doing and how excited we are about this new area, this new um, energy that we can make from ancient organisms. In a few years, you will be the ones coming up with the, the bright ideas that will really change the game here. And that will show how we can make different biofuels, make different types of energy sources, and how we can use those. So it just starts with learning and becoming familiar with a few things, like this young girl here who's assembling a fuel cell car that was used as part of a lesson on hydrogen and fuel cells. So I encourage you now to... um, to consider this and to get started. All right, thank you. Okay, thank you very much for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.